You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Peter Maravellis, and this is City Lights Live, our virtual reading series that follows in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, from where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums, moving into the winter of 2022 and hopefully towards a COVID-free era. As many of you know, City Lights is a publisher as well as a bookstore. We continue to publish poetry, literature, and translation, progressively-minded books on politics, and much, much more. It's always a treat for us to be featuring as part of our reading series, a book that we've published. So today we are delighted to be celebrating the publication of the book titled, What's Good? Notes on Rap and Language. And of course it is published by City Lights and written by the fabulous Daniel Levin Becker. It is by best description, a love letter and a very passionate lyrical analysis of the verbal artistry of hip hop. Now, each chapter of the book centers on a unique lyric and really examines the range of hip-hop's use of language. It offers the reader a meditation that at once crosses over from analytical into philosophical, celebrating the many pleasures of the music. Daniel Evenbecker immerses himself in the sounds of the Sugar Hill Gang, UGK, Jay-Z, Drake, and many others, offering a really loving celebration of what is one of the most vital art forms of the last half century. So Daniel Levenbecker is a critic, editor, translator, and publisher. He's one of the early contributing editors of the groundbreaking lyrics annotation site, Rap Genius. And he's written about music for The Believer, for NPR, SF Weekly, and Dusted Magazine, amongst others. He is the author of the book, Many Subtle Channels in Praise of Potential Literature which recounts his induction into the French literary collective Ulipo, of which he became the youngest member in 2009. His published translations include Jorge Perec's La Boutique Obscure, Eduardo Berti's An Ideal Presence, and Serge Haroc's The Science of Light. Daniel is also co-translator and co-editor of the collection All That Is Evident Is Suspect, Readings from the Ulipo, 1963 through 2018. And he's the editor of Dear McSweeney's. Together with his partner, Christina Kearns, he is the founding editor of Fern Books. He is also English editor of the French nonfiction publisher, Odile Jacob, senior editor of McSweeney's, and a longtime contributing editor to The Believer. He makes his home in Paris, where he is beaming to us today from. Uh, Daniel is going to be joined in conversation by Ian S. Port. Ian is an award-winning writer and music critic. He's the author of The Birth of Loud, very, very awesome book about uh, Leo Fender and Les Paul. Ian's writings have appeared in Rolling Stone, in Village Voice, the New York Times Magazine, The Believer, as well as numerous other outlets. He is the former music editor at the SF Weekly, currently making his home in New York City. So please join us now in giving a warm welcome to Daniel Levin Becker and Ian S. Port. Welcome to City Lights Live. Good to have you back. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much. All right, welcome everybody. Glad to have you today. Very excited to get to talk about this amazing book, What's Good by Daniel. Um, I had the pleasure of getting to know Daniel when uh, I was at SF Weekly and Daniel uh, very 
brilliantly applied to uh, to come work with us there and, and do some writing, had the pleasure of editing his work for a while there and talked to him about the idea for this book kind of as it grew for like many, many years. Uh, and so like excited that it's now a real physical thing that you can delight yourself with. And, and you know, we're going to be talking about it today. So um, welcome, everyone. And yeah, let's get into it. Daniel, I think we want to start by talking about kind of one of the first big songs you go through in the book and one of the first big concepts in the book, um, which we call, you call rewinding, on rewinding. How does that kind of play into hip-hop listening and, you know, kind of the, what do you want to tell us about rewinding as it relates to hip-hop? Uh, so it works on multiple levels. Um, the chapter, which is the second chapter in the book, talks about um, like the, the sort of the quote that it's centered on is a quote from Slug of Atmosphere, who talks about how he wants to be the man who makes you push rewind. And I talk about how that's actually a very um, common rap boast when you start to listen through the, the corpus, you start to hear people talk boastingly about their ability to make you rewind. And I kind of read into that why it's such a good boast for rap, because it not only um, it's very, it's like there's a technological flair to it. And I talk about how like, we don't actually really rewind anymore, but the metaphor has persisted. And uh, the way it implies that you are, it's sort of compelling you to make a decision to go back and listen to a lyric or a whole song or whatever, to, you make the decision to, to revisit in the moment. And that to me feels like a really true metaphor for my experience of rap, which, uh, you know, when it's good, which so often it is like, I'll hear something and I'll go, wait, what? And have to go back and listen to it. Whether it's, you know, if it's a song I'm listening to, maybe I'll press pause and wind. If it's a song I hear out somewhere, maybe I'll write down a lyric and look up later what it is. So just the sort of, I use it, I guess, as shorthand for a kind of um, rapt fascination, no pun intended that uh, uh, the, way, the way it's boasted about by rappers, which feels very true to my experience, makes you almost helpless, but to just go back and keep listening to it until, until you've wrapped your mind around it, octopus-like. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if you wanna read us some from that section. Yeah, so I'll read the, um, so I just kind of synopsized what happens in the first section of this chapter, but I'll read uh, the second section. One evening in October 2009, the New Jersey producer Just Blaze went on the radio to debut Exhibit C, a song he had made with the New Orleans rapper Jay Electronica. If you happen to have been listening or to have downloaded the Radio Rip MP3 that circulated for a few weeks before the CD quality version dropped, you may recall a sickly stringy spooling sound midway through the third verse while he spun the track back, muttering, hold up, I gotta rewind, I gotta rewind, I gotta rewind, hold up. Then the song skidded to a stop and the verse started again. And here I quote what the verse is, but um, I thought we would just listen to, listen to the song and I'll point out the part where he uh, goes back because I don't think we have access to the, the radio rip right now. Mr. Magic Rap Attack presents Tell 
a single slice of pizza to my name. Too proud to beg for change, mastering the pain. When New York niggas was calling Southern rappers lame, but then Jack and I slain. I used to get dizzy spells, hear a little ring. The voice of an angel telling me my name. Telling me that one day I'ma be a great man. Transforming with the Megatron doll spitting out flames. Eating whack rappers alive, shitting out chains. Nigga, I was homeless, uh-huh. fighting, shooting dice, smoking weed on the corners, trying to find the meaning of life in the corners. We gonna do a song. We gonna do a song. Have you ever heard? Build or destroy? Where you come from? The Mac know your projects in the third ward slum. Uh-huh. It's quite amazing that you rhyme how you shine like you grew up in the shrine in Peru. Uh-huh. Question 14, Muslim lesson two. Thank you for that. Um, so I'll continue. So the 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 passage where he says they call me J Electronica, fuck that, call me J Electronica, J Electronica, etc., is quoted in at length in the book. And so I say, just Blaze was right. He still is every time I play that MP3. You have to hear it twice at least. Its density, its weightlessness, the way it glides over the ecstatic throb of the beat, piling up slant rhymes, blending pure phonetics and imagistic logic slipping from English into Yiddish into Arabic back into English. The on-air rewind takes about four seconds, and in that space I hear triumph and bewilderment, a gestural acknowledgement that there's more in those bars that can be captured in a single encounter, perhaps in years of repeated plays. By the time I first saw Jay Electronica perform a few years later, 
you could go online and buy a t-shirt with some of this passage on it. And even the guy in the audience wearing that t-shirt couldn't quite keep up as he rapped along. There's a reason the word rewind has stuck around so persistently despite the vanishing rarity of literal rewinding. And I don't think it's just that progress bar and high speed scrubbing sound way lamer. It's that to rewind, the listener has to make a choice. Causing someone to do it isn't just an accomplishment because it prolongs their passive consumption. It's worth bragging about because it demands and receives effort, mechanical or cognitive, forges a connection with someone who hears your words and decides to let them in, to hear them again, maybe once more, maybe twice, maybe on and off for so many years that some of those words start to mean new things. The Rewind Boast is anachronistic, but also utopian. It speaks to the faith that words, words can literally stop time, can bridge the past to the present, person to person, people to people. I spend a lot of time thinking about these loops. I'm happy there. The best rationale I can give for this book is the extraordinary joy I find in exploring and revisiting them. My fascination with the way that spark travels from the mic to the tape to my mind, and with what happens to it as time passes. How the words become part of hip hop history and American history and the history of the English language, and at the same time, part of me. What goes on inside and outside of my head as I rewind this or that verse or couplet or one-liner over and over until my mental tape ribbon begins to fray and shear and other sounds, other words start creeping in. Thank you, thank you. I love that idea of rewinding being kind of utopian and just like reaching back and, and connecting. And I think that's a really nice um, place to go to another thing I wanna talk about, which is kind of your history with this rewinding and kind of you talk in the book about carrying rap lyrics as like stones in your pocket that you kind of like finger through and unpuzzle and, and sort through and I love that and I would love to hear more about when that started for you and when you kind of beware, became aware consciously of that as a thing that you were doing particularly with rap lyrics and then how you got from there to I'm gonna write a book about this where you're basically performing this act of unpuzzling for us across these pages. Yeah, um, I mean, so it's it's something I've always done with, um, with like well before I'd heard a rap song ever in my life, just little bits of phrase and rhymes and just strange ways of expressing things, strange ways of strange descriptions, movie dialogue. Uh, my dad is on this call and I inherited from my dad a, a particular knack for, for uh, reciting movie lines verbatim or what I think is verbatim until years later, I realized, and realized that I got an adverb slightly wrong. Um, so that's always been part of my wiring, just sort of this retention and the things that I retain are, I retain them because there's something that I wanna puzzle through about them. Like I, they're not just, they're not just perfectly clear in terms of what they're communicating. There's something more than the utility to them. And that just like, it pleases me to no end to keep examining them, keep repeating them, sort of turning them over to figure out how they work, which is something I talk a lot about in the book in terms of just sort of puzzling through rap lyrics, some of which are constructed as puzzles, like one-liners and similes and things that are, appear to be similes and aren't, and others that are just, just wrought in a way that is really fascinating and kind of lends itself to meditation for me. So um, the idea for the book came I mean, you and I, you and I had started working together. I was already writing for SF Weekly and writing about rap, not a ton, but um, you know, I had come from, I'd been writing about music for several years at that point, doing a lot of uh, album reviews and, and concert reviews in particular once I started writing for you. 
and um, initially started with rock and hip hop just started to occupy more and more of my attention. And I loved the way my, my attention interacted with it. Like it just became very clear to me that um, it was, it was the place that I, it was, it was what I had the most fun puzzling through and thinking about and writing about and, you know, the sort of the whole process between thinking and writing was very happy there, as I say in the book. And around that time, I'd also, I was also finishing my first book, which is about the Ulipo, which is another very language obsessive uh, world. It's the French group that um, deals a lot with writing uh, under constraint and analyzing literature in ways that seem more mathematical than literary, so to speak. Um, so I think I was also just looking for a new project, like the Ulipo project uh, took me three or four years of research and writing and as happy as I was for the book to be done, I also felt a little bit of a phantom limb pain of like, what is the thing that, what is the lens that I'm gonna see everything that I engage with in my daily life through? And I don't remember there being a conscious decision to say like, rap is gonna be that thing or that it already is. But I, for some, for whatever reason, it felt like a natural, um, a natural next thing and, and certainly a challenge. Yeah, I think it's impressive to me to see, like, in the book's finished form, how much of a piece it does feel with, like, the the earlier work and kind of, like, the idea of puzzling and, and just, like, of, of wordplay. It's, like, obviously hip-hop is such a, a, a incredible trove of that and, like, such a huge public, consequential, you know, culturally massive um, part of that. I want to ask about, as you write in the book, there are lots of... of other books about what rap lyrics mean or about what rap as a totality means. You put it in the book that you write about how rap means. And that does strike me as a fairly difficult thing to do. And I think one of the amazing achievements of this book is just how entertaining and fun it is to go with you page by page as you kind of uncover those meanings and, and sort through those puzzles with us. But that also seems very hard. So can you talk about some of the difficulties that you encounter in approaching a book that way and in, in actually just taking like this kind of semantic lens on rap? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's fraught with peril for sure. And one of the things that I think is very continuous with the rewind impulse that we were just discussing is that a lot of the time the rewind is not just that sounded great, I wanna hear it again, but how did they do that? What it, like, what is that actually constructed of? And how does it work together? I think probably if I weren't um, a writer, my relationship to, to hearing these conjurations of wordplay and these quips and, and such and such would be different because I think there probably was some latent sense of like understanding how these are constructed might make me a better writer, make me uh, a more confident or resourceful user of language. Um, but then that also gets, so that's, you know, like, I feel like that's, that's what the, the mission was for me. And the, the quote at the head of the rewind chapter is talking about the mission, the mission being to, to be the man that makes you push rewind. Um, but there's this sort of equal and opposite mission that in um, like black literary analysis is referred to as signifying which is this whole really compelling and fascinating rhetorical strategy of misdirection and kind of slippage and appearing to say one thing and actually meaning another thing. 
And that's the peril that I was describing. Like it's not just reading a really elegant lecture or a speech or even a poem and trying to puzzle through how it works. It's reading something that on some level, if not necessarily every single lyric is at least uh, the inheritor of a tradition that is like actively trying to scramble the path, trying to misdirect you and send you off on one path and whereas in fact, you know, the, the true meaning such as it is, is hiding somewhere else. So that was a big part of the challenge. As uh, Peter mentioned, you know, this was also around the time that Rap Genius was starting. Rap Genius, now just called Genius, but at the, or now just called Genius, initially called Rap Exegesis, um, unsurprisingly started by some people that I went to Yale with. Um, and I, they, they sort of started this website and I heard about it and thought it was super cool. Like I just loved the idea of creating this platform where people could um, transcribe lyrics and debate what they meant because it had both a helpful function of like listening to a song being like, I don't know what that word he just used means. And it's itching me from the inside to like, I want so badly to know what he's saying. And also just the discursive like, you hear it this way, I hear it this other way. And as long as the author, even if the author does have a, a literally authoritative uh, interpretation, which is the case with Jay-Z that I talk about uh, later in the book, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that other interpretations aren't equally valid. So it just felt like a really fun place to, uh, to play with those meanings and the, their various multiplicities. Um, but one of the cool things about Rap Genius in theory is that like it saves you from getting it wrong. It saves you from hearing some slang and being like, oh yeah, that's totally about like uh, sex when actually it's about cocaine or whatever. Like yeah. that's sort of, um, I don't know, maybe this is just a, maybe this is more of a me thing than a, a universal experience, but the fear of being like too confidently pretending that you know what something means and being, you know, the not the butt of the joke, but like outing your ignorance. So that's like, that was also the line that, that's the line that I surf uh, throughout this book. And so, you know, genius is a great resource to hear other people sound off on what they think something means, but ultimately like the interpretation is mine alone and the fault is mine and the embarrassment is mine if I turn out to be wrong. And, um, better to just sort of embrace that because it is really an important experience of listening to rap especially as a white listener um that gives there's there's a a level of anxiety to it but it also just makes the whole experience so much more uh lively and engaging i think yeah definitely i like the the sense that like you're probably missing something at, at all times or in many times, or like that there's some slippage there between even what your best thought of what something means and, and what it may mean to a certain audience. I think one of the interesting things about the book too is, you know, in some ways, like I said, it catalogs certain like less successful approaches of interpreting rap lyrics. Um, and there's some mentions in there of places where like people have approached it in some sort of you know, in curious, even like bullying ways. And, and then like seeing you wrestle with them with these, with these lines with such humility is really interesting. Um, and I think helps 
make one great success of this book, which is how personal it is in a subtle, in a certain way. Like there's a certain, there's a deep element of you underlying a lot of this. And so even though it is very much a book about rap and about rap lyrics, uh, it's also inevitably a book about your lens on them and, a, and then a book about you uh, in some ways. And I'd love for you to read some of that chapter, if you would, um, on me, where you sort of begin to bring yourself into, into the narrative. Sure. Yeah, so this is this is a couple, this is shortly after the rewind chapter, both of which they're both uh, very close to being they're sort of in the in the five chapter preamble section. So in the previous chapter talks about the idea of here and elsewhere and the perils of treating rap as too much of an elsewhere um, for demographic reasons or cultural reasons. A word though about my immediate here where I'm coming from, what I'm about, what I mean when I say normal and history and us. I love hip hop, the noun, writes Jason Tans and other people's property, an incisive and right-minded book about being a white rap fan, but I am not hip hop the adjective. Same here. I'm white, middle-class, educated, averse, law-abiding, sorry, risk averse, just generally averse to everything. Um, White, middle-class, educated, risk-averse, law-abiding with the usual exceptions that are fine for middle-class white people. I'm the son of a doctor and a composer and the youngest of five brothers and sisters, all brilliant and accomplished in their respective white-collar fields. I can do a Sunday, crossword, a Sunday New York Times crossword in 20 minutes and have no idea how a car engine works. I care deeply about language and like most of the things I care deeply about, my engagement is rooted more in fascination, in faith, than in dire need or worldly urgency. Nobody challenges the legitimacy of the way I speak or my right to do so. Nobody conspires to censor or silence me. I'm just the kind of person who routinely has and enjoys having lyrics and slogans and names and things unsaid stuck in his head like popcorn shards between teeth. The kind of person who knows mental floss would be an appropriate pun right there, but doesn't care to use it, but cares enough to let you know he doesn't care to. And then I do a sort of close reading of a Nas lyric where he, um, enters his guest verse in a Kanye West song and spends the first eight lines thinking out loud about what he wants to talk about. I don't know if we can play, can we play it? Yeah, give me one second, I'll, I'll bring okay. it up. I'll, I'll finish the, so uh, doesn't care to use it but cares enough to let you know he doesn't care to. Complex, ornately. Like Nas when he drops by for a cameo on We Major and spends the first line thinking out loud about how to use the first line. Actually, it's the first eight lines. Starts, I think, like two and a half minutes through the song, or when you get there. Thank you. Come on, homie, we major. We major. Come on, homie, we major. We major. Come on, homie, we major. We major. Come on, homie, we major. I heard the beat and I ain't know what to write. First line should it be about the holes of the ice? Four foes of black price, both flows would be nice. Rap about big paper on a black man flight. At the studio console, ask my man to the right, what this verse sound like? Should I freestyle or write? He said, Nas, with the fans, when it's ill, Maddox still. Look at the pad and pencil and jot it what I feel. Been like 12 years since a nigga first signed. Now I'm a free agent and I'm thinking it's time to build my very own motor.
So he found something to write about. <laughs> he found something to write about, finally, after, after these eight lines. Um, and then I just, to follow, I say, I will go to my grave wishing my self-conscious rhetorical throat clearings could sound so cool. What Nas seems to toss off here is not just a very efficient overview of the themes he spent his career elaborating, decadence, gunplay, activism, divinity, but also a rare window onto his composition process, his creative deliberations, the whole inner monologue around medium and message that is at once so tantalizing in a rapper and so often viewed as beside the point. Most of all though, what I hear in it is a true statement about what it's like to speak on something so much bigger than yourself, so much more expansive than the present, something inexhaustible and infinite that is also right here. It's what it feels like for me to put words to away with words that so often leaves me before the rest colors itself in speechless. I wanna ask, have you or did you encounter any resistance to the idea of approaching rap lyrics like this? Like in the very intro of the book, you kind of feign this defensiveness of like, no, you're reading too far into it when you pull apart a 50 cent lyric for us. Did you encounter resistance to this in yourself or from others or how did that, how did that go? I didn't really um, encounter any resistance, except the notable exception being my agent at the time, who I said I wanted to write a book about rap, and she was like, "Does it need to be a book?" <laughs> um, which, which it did. Like, it was an excellent question, and in so many ways, this project would have been much quicker and probably much more, uh, like, commercially apt if it were a podcast or something. But you know, like, I'm just the kind of person who needed it to be a book. Other than that, like, no, I don't think um, there's a part in late, a little later in the introduction where I talk about how like this book's straw man, like the person I'm arguing against isn't um, the, the person who's like rap, is that garbage still around? Like that doesn't make any sense. That's, you know, it's, it's um, I, I, right before coming here this evening, I went to an event. Um, it was like a book launch for a French book about American rap. And there was a roundtable discussion with some, some of the people who were sort of the pioneers in bringing American rap or rap period to France. And they were recalling that there was, you know, there's this period of resistance where people are like, this isn't, this uh, is not high culture. It's not going to be around for a while. Eric Zemmour, who's kind of the Trumpian far right candidate in the upcoming presidential election, um, has described, like, very famously once described rap as a culture of illiterates. Um, so I feel like that, that tension, that sort of antagonism has always been present, but it hasn't really been present in my lifetime culturally. Like by the time I came of age and started listening to rap, there weren't, um, you know, there weren't university courses being taught on hip hop that Yale hadn't put out. It's, it's like 800 page anthology of rap lyrics, but I think it was pretty clear to everybody who didn't have some more suspect reason for denying it, that like rap was here to stay. It was commercially this huge juggernaut and culturally like it was doing a lot. It was bringing, bringing together a lot of threads in black culture, in uh, American culture, in Jamaican culture, and just creating something that was at once like ages old and completely new. And so, to argue against that cultural block felt like a little bit of a straw man thing. It felt sort of dishonest to say that like, I was, I needed to argue for rap's uh, legitimacy 
as some as a an object of cultural study or as you know high culture or whatever and so uh, yeah like i does that answer your question i've been talking for so long that i forgot what your question was <laughs> yeah no i think that does answer the question um yeah no i think yeah, so, right so 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 the what i say in the introduction is something to the effect that like my antagonist if this book has one which it doesn't really have one but besides maybe these people whose approach to interpreting rap is really incurious is exactly the right word. Like that's the thing that offend, like um, if you don't know what something means and that's driving your interpretation, that's fine. But if you're not curious, if you're just satisfied saying like, I don't understand what this means. So I'm going to say it's stupid, which really is, I think either the, the subtext or sometimes the text of some treatments of rap out there. Like that's the only thing that really gets under my skin. So that's, that's like a little bit of an antagonist for the book, but otherwise it's not so much this idea that rap is, is bullshit so much as this idea that like the main value we should get from rap's importance is sociological. That like rap is this, you know, it's this blossoming of black rage or inner city angst or whatever, like there's a lot of that. And I don't think that's an unfair dimension to take up when you talk about rap, but to talk about that without also taking into account just the sheer excellence and brilliance and linguistic resourcefulness and rhetorical creativity. Like that's, that just seems criminal to me to not acknowledge how special it is as art, no matter what it is that you want to say about it as, as sociology or sort of the political artifact. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad. Um, I just, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to imagine who would have a who would who would take up arms against this approach, and I am just really glad that we did not have to get there. I want to move on to stay scheming and Drake and Lil Wayne and the question of character and performance. You write a number of great things on this subject, but one of them is about bringing up kind of character, and you talk about Lil Wayne. Uh, and I won't I won't spoil the the analogy you use, but the, you write that he was it's functionally, like during his peak, it was kind of functionally almost impossible for him to be out of character in the sense that nothing was like beyond him. Uh, he could say or do anything in his lyrics and we would essentially believe it. And I love this idea of like plausibility and the kind of tension of like knowing that the characters that people portray in rap songs are not the characters, the people they really are in real life, but that sometimes that well, you would line think, is- You would think we know that and yet- Right. Yeah, you know, right. thank you. The persistence of like uh, criminal prosecutors trying to use rap lyrics as, as evidence in trials on, on the grounds that they're autobiographical, you know, scribblings is like that person. Sorry, that's a, a parenthesis. No, but that's an important one. And it is, it is remarkable how, how much certain audiences don't understand the slippage between uh, what's portrayed in a rap song and, and what really goes on in life. But yeah, I wanted to get you to talk briefly about Lil Wayne and kind of his his plausibility and then to, for us to talk a little bit about Drake and the kind of different uh, uh, conditions or, or limits of plausibility there. Yeah, um, maybe I'll just read quickly from, from this, this chapter which is called Deniable Plausibility, whose main quote is uh, Drake in a song that maybe we'll listen to a bit of uh, where he's just talking about how he's he's unpredictable. He says, you think Drake will pull some shit like that? You never know. And my my reaction is like, I do know. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure you won't. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, I have a pet theory according to which Little Wayne, who is uh, who's really like maybe the most ever the most present rapper in this book, just because he um, he just has this grasp of language and this ability to make it bend to whatever completely freaky stoned whim he wants it to to submit it to. It just like. It's, he's an unbelievably magnetic writer and all the more fascinating because he seems to absolutely reject the idea that he's a writer or a poet. Like my two main points of evidence are um, allegedly he has not written any of his lyrics down since like uh, 2000. Um, and he's incredibly prolific, he's recording all the time. And there's a, a, a documentary about him from like 2009 and there's a scene in it where um, he's just sort of doing this press junket and getting all these interviews. And there's a Dutch interviewer who says, I want to talk about the, the, the influence of jazz in your poetry. And Little Wayne's like, hold up. Uh, this interview is with a rapper, not a poet. I don't do poetry, I do rap. And the guy's like, okay, well, I'm sorry. And Wayne's like, you know what? This interview is over. Uh, which is just such a fabulous iconic moment for me. Anyway, Little Wayne is really fascinating to me. I have a pet theory, according to which Little Wayne is the Homer Simpson of rap, because during their peak eras, respectively roughly 2004 to 2009 and 1992 to 1997, it was functionally almost impossible for either of them to be out of character. Nothing was beyond them. Their range was too immense. Their individual deeds outlandish in too many different ways. Who they were, who they could be, was enveloped in a kind of blurry omniplausibility. Just as Homer could be up on theological arcana or American jurisprudence or the sex appeal of Oliver North in one moment and return to being an inconsiderate boor the next, Wayne could flash a soulful or erudite or kittenish side without breaking his stride as a drug-gobbling alien mobster. He could wander from obscure to lewd to crude to menacing to playful back to obscure in the space of a verse. And it's not that he didn't seem unfocused. It was that his lack of focus was not a distraction from his persona, but a fundamental part of it. He was that malleable, a true hybrid of human and cartoon. Like peak Homer, peak Wayne is a personification to borrow a description of Esua Vagbara, who is the Yoruba trickster deity, who is the basis of the signifying monkey, who's kind of the, the central metaphorical figure for signifying the rhetorical tradition I was talking about earlier. He's the um, personification of flux and mutability. If Wayne is Homer, his Canadian protege Drake is Ross from Friends, a little nerdy, a little clingy, sort of tastefully swarthy. He, Drake, is a brooding bon vivant and a dreamy drunk dialer, buoyant and sentimental and callow and prone to minor cruelties like trawling moral, trawling mall food courts and telling every girl she the one for me when I ain't even planning to call. And part of his massive success, I think, has been this sense of transparency, this notion that what you hear on record is or at least aspires to be a candid reflection of who he really is, how he's been spoiled and deadened and woken by megastardom. He'll be petty and nostalgic and drop verifiable hints about past dalliances that he's still hung up on. He'll rap about his grandma. He is dependably talented and reliably, even in the plush throes of impossible wealth, even brooding cinematically in an empty mansion, relatable. Somewhere along the way, though, let's say circa 2011's Take Care, he also started dabbling in darker, streetier tropes. A bit of thug life here, a bit of mafioso acculturation there. 
Not so much that his stories themselves got more sinister, more that he began spinning them with more allusions to danger and violence, peppering his boasts and avowals of emotional recklessness with intimations of deadly firepower. His signaling got hazier. I seen a lot of you die, he says of rival rappers on free smoke after establishing an elaborate rhetorical framework for the concept of death. You gonna hype me up and make me catch a body like that, he says in headlines, because I live for this. It isn't just a hobby like that. And I'll skip ahead and talk a little bit about how catch a body is um, slang, a slang expression that means to murder somebody. It's like a remarkably flippant way of talking about murdering somebody. Um, but like many of the terms in hip hop vernacular for violence, they also could very plausibly be a term for sex. And there's a rapper named Dreezy, a Chicago rapper who's great, who has a song called Body, where she basically skates along this uh, ambiguity between, she says, she says, you're, you're going to catch a body if you ain't careful. And it's clearly a seductive thing. It's not... Uh, it's not about murder, but it still retains this like frisson of menace because it also clearly means murder. And so the chapter is largely just about how Drake is superbly adept at writing that line of saying things that sound like he's being threatening. But if somebody were to say, are you being threatened? He could very easily just be like, well, no, 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 I was just, I was, it was just a sex thing <laughs> or a, yeah. just some other kind of, of slang. Um, and that's where we get to this line in this Rick Ross song where he's, he's having a feud with Common, who's a rapper, another rapper from Chicago. Um, allegedly, they were both romantically involved with Serena Williams. And so he sort of like sneaks in this diss of Common in this Rick Ross song and says, um, basically like, you think Drake will pull some shit? He says, might look like, but we heavy though. You think Drake will put some, pull some shit like that? You never know. And then there's this, I go on to read, read this line in, in light of my skepticism that he will, uh, he will actually pull a weapon. Should we play the verse for people? Yeah, let's, let's yeah. listen to the verse. All right, let's listen to the verse. And then folks, we'd love to have your questions in the chat. Um, we're gonna get to them shortly, but let's play some, some, some Drake silliness first. It bothers me when the guards get to acting like the bras. Guess everything doesn't come complete with niggas like ours. That's why I see no need to compete with niggas like y'all. I just ask that when you see me, you speak up, nigga, that's all. Don't be ducking like you never wanted nothing. It's feeling like rap changed. It was a time it was rugged. Back when if a nigga reached, it was for the weapon. Nowadays, niggas reach just to set they record. Spaghetti bowling years in the polo lounge. Me and my G from DC, that's how I roll around. Might look light, but we heavy though. You think Drake will put some shit like that? You never know. Million dollar meetings in the polo lounge. Me and my man Oliver North, that's how I roll around. Shorty wanna tell me secrets about a rap nigga. I tell that bitch it's more attractive when you hold it down. Another Oliver North reference for us. I just put that together that the the fact that i talk about oliver north earlier in this chapter was completely uh in complete oblivion 
with respect to the fact that Drake then goes on to talk about Oliver North. That's you've all just witnessed a, a brain connection being made. So yeah, um, let's see. So I'll say, um, I talk about how he says, nowadays people reach just to sell their record. And I say, it's brilliant how plausibly this could be a self-own. Nostalgia for a bygone era of pistol packing being even more of a reach for Drake than it was for Common, who by 2011 was basically a sentient perfume commercial. Common makes a, no, I'll skip ahead. So now I don't know Drake. To clarify, I don't know Audrey, Aubrey Break, oh, sorry, I don't know Aubrey Drake Graham of Toronto. I should have rehearsed saying his full name. But I know Drake, the global rap star, reasonably well. And when he hits the, hits the triumphant third person checkmate call above, you think that Drake will pull some shit like that, you never know. My immediate and categor categorical reaction is no, I do, and he won't. He's not keeping me guessing here. I don't believe he's liable to pull some shit like that at least not in the way he wants me to. I believe the shit he'll pull is to continue shrewdly treading the thin line between genuine vendetta and public ETH as competitive celebrity exercise, then go celebrate another platinum single at Hooters. Again, I claim no authority here. The blogger Ernest Baker once spent a few evenings at Drake's Hidden Hills compound and reported that the guy who walks around politely checking on everyone at his party is the same one who can't wait to let his new Beretta go. And I have no reason not to believe this is true of Aubrey Graham. I'm just saying, wrong or right, I don't think I'll ever listen to a Drake song and think this is definitely a guy who owns and routinely uses firearms. Oh, it's a great chapter. And then, so the sort of closing the loop on the chapter is that I say, like, as far as I know, Little Wayne has never killed anyone either, but his raps are full of these like very menacing threats. And I don't have the same reaction. So it's just sort of, trying to interrogate what it is about, as you say, this, the predicament and, and phenomenon of playing a character that's so easy for some people to master and like creates such blockage for other people. I wonder if like Drake didn't have such a like notorious past as a, you know, teenage actor, if it would be a lot easier to imagine a more, you know, dubious past, but since we all saw him on TV or, you know, that it's like, mm, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. man. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like that's, that's a really great illustration of just the fact when somebody's verified public life before rap or concurrent to rap, like really stands in the way of their ability to kind of invent themselves as whatever persona they need to be able to. Yeah. Although it's ironic that we're saying that in the context of a Rick Ross song, because there again is someone. That's a point. Whose, whose personal past is very apparent and well-known. He was, uh, I believe, a prison security guard. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yet has turned into a completely different character. Yeah, he's a former corrections officer who, like, whose larger-than-life persona is, like, he's a drug kingpin. Uh, he's, like, used to hang out with Manuel Noriega. And I think I, uh, Tom Bryan, who writes about rap a lot, currently at Stereo Gum, I think wrote a really compelling essay about that, about like why, why um, character and just sort of how you, the husbandry that you're capable of, how you manage your character makes such a big difference in how much people are upset. Like Rick Ross was sort of outed as a former corrections officer and no, did, nobody really cared. Like his right. career right. didn't suffer for it. And I forget who, who he was comparing that to. I don't think it was Drake. Yeah, well, 
not in rap, but I was thinking about Lana Del Rey and the moment in music mm -hmm. criticism in 2011 or whatever it was when we discovered Lana Del Rey had had the temerity to try to be a pop star at one point and that completely sabotaged her credibility and everyone was upset about it for like a year. Anyway. Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting, it's just sort of a compelling, crunchy, problematic, uh, yeah. as it were, in, in rap. And this chapter is sort of the, the prelude to a series of chapters that gets into just like what reality means in rap yeah. and how sort of the good and the bad of the way we as listeners adjudicate like what we think is real and what we think isn't culminating in a chapter about what I was describing earlier about uh, rap lyrics being used as evidence in criminal trials. Yeah, which is great. So much good stuff here. Um, shall we open it up to folks' questions and, and invite? Uh, yes, but I do, I, sorry, I do just want to say two more things about Stay Scheming, the song yes. that we just heard the Drake verse from. There's a Rick Ross verse that I quote in, else, in a completely different chapter of the book, just because of the way he, um, his just sort of sure-footedness with the way he says words makes him capable of rhyming the following four words. He rhymes for it, paranoid, category, and California, which like, what a guy it takes to be able to make those four words sound like rhymes. And then there's something I don't talk about at all in the book, but just want to shout out is that the last verse in the song is by this rapper named French Montana, who uh, has kind of disappeared from the discourse. Um, I don't think he's hugely missed, but like he, he was a cool presence for a while. And the very beginning of his verse, he says something like, from the hoop-de-coop to the ghost dog, pigeons on the roof like Birds on the Roof Like Ghost Dog. So he's making a reference to the Jim Jarmusch movie and Foreign Cars. Um, from the hoop-de-coop to the ghost means like from a shitty beat up old car to like a really exotic foreign car that I don't like. There's so many really expensive cars that I know about only from rap lyrics that I don't yeah, know if they're like totally. brands or makes or just slang, whatever. I think it's a Rolls but, Royce, right? A Silver Ghost or yeah. Um, but the way he says from the hoopty coop sounded to a lot of people like he was saying fanut the coop <laughs> and so there was this like in the particular um like echo chamber of online rap criticism there were all these people who were like what does fanut mean like people were treating it like this very important new slang there was a uh, there's a new york times op-ed by willie staley just about this incident of like basically like fanut gate uh, and I just think that's such a wonderful little microcosm of the way that like accidental coinages of like French Montana, I don't think is even really creative enough to uh, to coin the word fanu, but he wasn't even trying. And like still that has this cultural gravitas that so many people are just ready to be like, what does that mean? Let's rewind and figure out, let's just listen to that word that uh, that passage again until we figure out what he means when he's like fanuting this coop. Okay, I'm done. No, no, I mean, it's just amazing how much rap lyrics heard or misheard are just this kind of engine for cool, this engine for slang, like this perpetual, like even like, I, I feel like the the way uh, like grunts, like the, uh, who's the you grunt that you talk about in the book where it's just like. Um, oh, it was Pusha T. 
The Pusha T, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Quite a lot. Yeah. Um, I, just those happenstance sounds, the way they come out, it's just like you hear it and it's like, well, that's that's got to be something. That's cool. Now we're talking about that. We're going to apply that somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. French Montana, it should be said, having a great one of those, which is just like, the only word for it is a bray. He's just like, huh? Just when did I, that become didn't a thing that all rappers very well, or the French Montana noise very well. I'm not. That's not. That's not why I'm here. That's not why you guys are on this call. Yeah. Um, but I recommend. I recommend listening to these men's uh, like expressive expectorations. All right, we have a couple questions in the chat. We'd love to have some more. Um, but let's let's get to the first one. Um, Mr. Tim asks. Um, as a high school teacher, I'm thinking about how your writing could provide a great entry point for teenagers to have more fun with literary analysis. Any thoughts on this and or energy to adapt for a uh, for young adults version? Oh man, that would be super fun. I don't really have any, I feel like maybe my, my most useful thought on this is this, this conclusion that I just came to time after time when researching this book and listening to you know, researching by having a great time just listening to rap all the time. Most of it, like, the farther I got into the project was starting to be made by people younger than me. Um, it's just that, like, kids are just so smart. Like, the, you know, this, whatever edifice of adults knowing better, whether it was zeitgeisty or cultural or just sort of the order of, of the world since time immemorial, just seemed like it made less and less sense to me as I listened to rap and watched the way people on Genius, for instance, interacted with it, or the way that young rappers uh, quoted older rappers in this really like subversive, impious ways. Um, all of which is to say, like, I kind of question what, besides maybe scrubbing out some of the profanity, like, what adjustments would need to be made to talk to high schoolers about rap because I feel like so many of the like what I call these rhetorical technologies are for people who've been listening to rap for grown up listening to rap and I think the case with most young people is that even if they're not like mavens of rap it's seeped so much into the cultural water supply that like it's hard not to be familiar with with its codes and its rhetoric like I think it's second nature to a lot of people. Like you see it, you see the way the vernacular is kind of seeped online also, like the way people tweet, the way people on Tumblr, probably on TikTok, if I even really knew what TikTok was. Um, so I know this is a rambling answer to that question. I think it's a really interesting um, project, especially with respect to thinking about rappers as writers, which is kind of a, a connecting of dots that is not necessarily intuitive. And I think that's something, even in this book, which it like, I don't think I articulated to myself until after the book was done, that that's one of the things that I'm arguing for in this book is to treat rappers like writers because of the way, even people like Little Wayne, who allegedly never write anything down physically, um, just the way they are composing and the things they're doing with language is so resourceful and interesting that I think there's a lot of, a lot of rich territory to be mined there. So energy, yeah, but I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> yeah, great question though. I hope I hope that uh, I hope that happens. Yeah, and Mr. Tim, I could see you 
taken some chapters out of this, maybe some of the ones that deal with less uh, uh, colorful, less yeah, less scurrilous, yeah, exactly, and uh, and reproducing them for you. Susan Lippman asks, is there a conflict of expectation between what rap represents and America's history of racism? Is there a conflict of expectation? Um, I think if I understand your question, I think that's kind of what I was getting at um, before when I was talking about the sort of the different potential straw men of this book that um, obviously America has this deeply fraught history of racism and obviously rap is a majority black art form. Um, and a lot of it is, I think at one point I, I described, there's a chapter about just, a, it's called on white people. And I describe white people as basically like the background noise in which all rap, all rap, most rap songs, most American rap songs have been made. Like we just sort of set this, this context. And so there's some, there are a lot of rap songs that are about race. And there are a lot of rap songs that feel to me like they are intentionally not about race. Like they are um, insistently carrying on living life, making their observations of whatever, whatever they're observing, intentionally bracketing out the question of black versus white. But I think at a certain point, it's to do a disservice to rap and to, to one's experience of rap to be looking for too much um, evidence of of America's racial history. Um, yeah, I'll leave that there. If if you meant something else, please please chime in in the chat. But I think I think that's my answer. Uh, there's an interesting question in the chat. Do only elites talk about rap music this way? And I think the converse of that might be: Do rappers talk about rap? Or the, another way to phrase that question: Do rappers talk about rap music this way? Or I'm not sure if that's what the questioner is asking, but. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. There's I, there's a chapter that kind of grapples with that um, because you know, like, it's hard for me to stomach thinking of myself as an elite, but like, I did go to an Ivy League college and I learned a lot about literary analysis there, and like, the sort of apparatus that I'm bringing to criticism and the leisure of thinking about these things critically at these things that don't really that extremely rarely describe my own lived experience. Like that is there's a great deal of privilege embedded in that. And there's a chapter that basically says like, there's so many rappers who are just blisteringly talented and who can do things with language that have names, like, you know, the metaphor and simile are like absolutely the most basic. There's Zygma, there's an Antinaclysis, there's just like all of these techniques that rappers use that correspond to things, to rhetorical tropes and figures that have been around for a long time, but rappers don't seem interested in that kind of pigeonholing. I give the example of there's um, a scene, there's another documentary that Ice-T made uh, called, I think, Something From Nothing, The Art of Rap. And at one point he's talking to Eminem and Eminem is talking about like how interested he is in like the technical side of rapping, but he just like, he doesn't use any technical terms. He doesn't use any jargon. Like the most technical word he uses is sandwich. And I think that's a really compelling tension because um, it calls into question something about 
my perspective, like something about what I'm bringing to this as an observer who like, I can't do the things that Little Wayne does with language. And just because I know kind of taxonomic drawers in which to put some of the things that he does, what does that actually mean I'm bringing to the conversation? Um, but I don't know, like th there are also rappers who, to say that rappers never talk about, never use the word simile, never talk about metaphors. Um, I think that that would be inaccurate also. Like there was a, a quote that I never managed to really like find a place for in the book, but it's Bun B who's an incredible rapper. He's half of this group, the, the group that Peter mentioned earlier, UGK from Texas, just phenomenally good rapper. And he gave an interview um, in The Believer maybe 10 years ago and he, he, where he speaks really interestingly about like what his approach is, what his sort of his strategy of, of composition, his philosophy of writing. And there, there are lots of rappers who do that. There's actually also a series of books called How to Rap by a guy named Paul Edwards, who just interviews a bunch of rappers about these things, you know, about like their background, their influences, but sometimes it gets really technical. So um, while acknowledging that it's also very complex at best to distribute the different rappers into elite versus non-elite, I think um, it's, not groundless, but it's not totally accurate either to say that the only people who talk about rap in this way are the people who are, you know, very privileged and um, not practitioners themselves, I guess. Yeah, I find it really like, it, it seems rappers know what they're doing. They may not know what the like exact rhetorical terms are, but they like, I've, Lil Wayne understands when he throws out one of those verses, like all of the different ways in which it is like blowing your mind, like he, he does. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, it's basically sort of challenging. Like, I love, I have the kind of brain I have is the kind of brain that loves having names for things, loves being able to identify and say like, oh, that's, that's an example of this. That's what species this butterfly is. And just sort of like calling into question what is really the utility of that. Yeah. There's a funny question in the chat I want to get to. Someone says, I remember a moment in the manuscript where you describe having a physical reaction to most deaf's voice. I'd love to hear more about this negative ASMR. I don't remember that in the book. Should that make the final point? That's actually not in the book. That's um, in, I, there's, I read an essay about Kanye West a few years ago, right after the life of Pablo had come out. Um, and I wish I could, I wish I could read it. Um, there's just a part about like, the, that essay starts with my brother-in-law asking me if I can explain Kanye West to him. And this coming at a time when I don't know how to explain Kanye West, but as somebody, this is The Life of Pablo, which is an album Kanye West released in 2016 in a very convoluted rollout, including like it was difficult to find on certain streaming platforms. I couldn't figure out a way to buy it. And at one point, it seemed like the only way to maybe try to buy it was to go to Kanye's page, his like website, and the splash page made you listen to this like eleven-minute uh, voicemail from Most oh, Def. Yeah. I remember that. It was yeah. a rapper from New York um, who now goes by Yasin Bey. Um, and I just like I don't I don't like Most Def that much, and there's something about his his enunciation 
Um, I think once for you, for Ian, for uh, an SF Weekly post, I wrote about it. There's a, a currency song that featured most Def and J Electronica. And the, J, the currency verse is great. The J Electronica verse is amazing. And then in between, there's this hook where most Def just sort of, as I described it in that post, like sounds like he's recovering from dental surgery. <laughs> and like that's just that that there's some some sometimes when he wants to, he can he can rap. I guess more athletically. I don't know what the word is, but like I just there's there's a mumbliness to him uh, that turns me off. And so I talk in this uh, in this essay about how like I don't know what to say about Kanye West, but as somebody who is just um, as somebody whose soul shri shrivels like a salted slug at the sound of most Def's voice, but had just sat through eleven minutes of it on Kanye West's website in the hopes of being able to buy a copy of this album, I felt like I should have something to say. Um, that's, I realize that's dodging the actual question or what was the actual question? Uh, the question was about your physical reaction. Well, I thought, I think you got it, shrivel like a slug. Yeah, I could have just, I could have been much more concise and say my, my soul shrivels like a salted slug. <laughs> um, a couple interesting questions about the export of rap and rap culture to other countries and other languages. Um, Anita is asking about this and, you know, whether she's asking whether it should still be connected to the full history or can the evolution create a true separate path from the original, bringing up the example here of Korean hip hop. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and there's another question about Paris and France and hip hop, which I'll get to after that. But mm. what do you think about? Um, so full disclosure, I know nothing about Korean hip hop. I know nothing about most hip hops that are not American or French or like English speaking. Like I'm aware that most countries and, and languages have a pretty robust hip hop tradition at this point, but like most of it is totally unfamiliar to me. What I will say about French rap is that would I think it wouldn't have existed without American rap, and that's this this uh, book event I went to earlier this evening was a big was testament to that. I think, unfortunately, the author didn't really get to talk. It was just mostly uh, these like old old vets from French importation of rap who were um, reminiscing. But I think like the the fact that that book exists as a way of paying homage to the influence of American rap kind of goes without saying. But that at this point, like they are pretty much two parallel tracks. And in the way, like a good example is that American rap, although it doesn't always confront it openly, still pretty consistently bears the awareness in the background of the history of race in America, which is just not pertinent to French rap. But there are other historical political traumas, like a lot of French rappers are North African. And so there's, there's a whole different history there that gets worked out, that gets um, riffed on and signified on and um, kind of litigated in a way in rap. So I think, um, I guess my answer would be, we've kind of exported this template that is just sort of the baseline of what rap is and what it can be, which itself I think contains this will to challenge um, what's accepted, what's traditional, both linguistically and rhetorically and musically. Um, but then that 
each country, each language brings its own uh, preoccupations and different kinds of wordplay and um, musical flavor to to its own, I guess, parallel hip hop. Great. We're getting a request for you to hold up that beautiful book and show it to everyone, Daniel. Yeah. It's very beautiful. Um, I special shout out to the spine and back, like the, just the whole, the whole book. I just couldn't be, couldn't be more well, pleased with the job. Show that. the inside too. So? Show us the inside. Show us what a page looks like, so people can see how the lyrics are included in the kind of main narrative. Yeah. Actually, Daniel, I want to ask you: Did you 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 kind of designed that layout yourself, didn't you? Because when I first saw a part of this book, when you were working on alone years and years ago, you had that same format. You came up with that. I did, yeah. So I, I designed it in the sense that like I conceived what I wanted it to look like, but unfortunately I'm not a talented enough designer to uh, know how to, like what you saw was a Word doc that I at like very cumbersome length uh, made like pulling teeth got to look like what I wanted to look like. And then to get it into an InDesign file that could be printed took a lot of sacrifice and good humor on the part of Geraldine, the designer from City Lights, who is, uh, who put up with a lot and um, like probably at a certain like wishes she could have spent like a hundred dollars just like giving me an InDesign tutorial instead of having to work with me. But uh, we can't, we can't go back in time that way. So sorry, Geraldine. Um, but yeah, like the, the, the disposition on the page was my idea. And one of the things that I wanted to sort of imply as a visual metaphor with having these, uh, these rap lyrics in the margin was that like this discussion, the body text that I'm ha the discussion I'm having exists kind of between the rap lyrics. Like it's not enclosing them, it's being enclosed by them. And so this is like, the calling the book the subtitle of the book being notes on rapid language for a while I thought maybe it, I want to call it liner notes on rapid language but it really felt like this whole discussion I was having is entirely beholden to these lyrics like they are why I'm writing this book and they are what I want to glorify above my own ideas so in my completely amateurish way like that was the that was the design principle I wanted to bring through that's great I love that. And I love the way that the, the book flows and the way that like you put in lyrics in those margins or in that margin that you're not necessarily even directly talking about at times in the book, but just like things that are kind of, you know, conversant with the, the theme of whatever you're saying, like lyrics or you bring up lyrics from before that come and have like a special echo with like the point that you're taking us to. And it's just like a really interesting journey to have these kind of like two. And actually it's very 2022. It's very like, to have kind of two two screens, two two flows of, of words going mm -hmm. at you at, at the same mm -hmm. time. Yeah, I mean, that's another, somebody uh, made the remark that like, uh, instead of like an audiobook or an ebook, there should just be like a CD-ROM, like Microsoft Encarta 1996, like digital version of the book where you could actually just like click on something to the side and it would play a 10 minute, uh, sorry, a 10 second snippet. Like that's kind of, without my even realizing it, I think that was sort of the mode that uh, that I created this in. And like, 
I think it also just kind of is an attempt to replicate some of the things that happen in my brain when I'm listening to rap because I'm hearing what I'm hearing and then it, some word is going to remind me of something else or some explicit reference to something else is going to like create this parallel chain or not entirely parallel but like there's just a lot of forking um yeah. and so trying to like grapple with that and wrangle it down into something that I could put on a two-dimensional page felt like a like a cool challenge cool creative exercise great uh well, we have one last question to get to and then um if folks have any more we can, we can get more or close out uh since you live in Paris do you think your book will have an influence on what's happening in France read the American rap issues raised by you or is this not not part of your your intention I think it is interesting, you know, that you, obviously you lived in the States for a long time, lived in Paris before, now you're back in France, writing a book very much about American culture, but living it and kind of putting it out. What are you, yeah, what are your expectations or like, how do you see your book influencing your life in France or, or yeah, talk about that disconnect a little bit. Hmm. Um, I will say, I think uh, I, I would love for this book to come out in French. Um, I can imagine few things that I would have more fun with than working with a translator on, because to translate a book like this, it's like a double challenge. The first is just to translate the, the, the prose, um, which has, you know, there's some, some tap dancing that I do that I would want to make sure it gets, gets respected or replaced with something else that's, you know, like there's some stuff that I'm sure will be untranslatable, but then there's also the lyrics themselves, which like having having done a little bit of translating of French rap lyrics into English uh, for for subtitling music videos and that sort of thing, like it's it's really difficult. Like it's super fun, but it's a real challenge. So, in a way, one thing I had sort of hoped for, not hoped for, one thing I imagined in thinking about the life that this book could lead outside of the American context and with other languages was that um, obviously some of the things, obviously the quotes that I read into in each chapter are in English, but the ideas that, you know, like, what does it mean? The slippage between character and author, the way quotations get made, the way rhymes work, the way that rappers are reluctant to talk about the technical or literary theoretical implications of what they do. Like those things I think are, I suspect are universal. And I would love if there was just like a shell that like somebody in a different language could hollow out the book, take out the American references and replace them and say like, if I wanna write a chapter about rhyme and the way that um, the sort of attraction that two words in proximity exert on each other and like what that does cognitively, they can just find their own examples. Like that I think would be super cool. Um, I have no idea how feasible that is and certainly be a, uh, just, just a monster of a, of a translation job. But yeah. I feel like it's also a monster of a translation job to translate a book without the letter E into a language that doesn't even have the letter E. And there are people who are crazy enough to do that. So. Why not? Um, yeah, sorry, that got away from me a little bit there. But I uh, do hope that this book has a life outside of English 
and um, that it helps some people kind of make sense of some of the things that they intuit that is just sort of latently present in their experience of rap or poetry or whatever, or other kinds of song lyrics um, that it gives them this kind of mesh, as I describe it in the introduction, in which to, to fill in their old, their, sorry, their, own, um, their own experience of it. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you. Well, thank you, gentlemen. That was a whole lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, to, uh, for your questions. Those are wonderful questions. Thank you so much, Ian. It's always a delight. Thanks, everyone. with you. Uh, Daniel, congratulations. Ian, excellent interview. Thank you so very much. Thank you all in the audience. This event is made possible by the City Lights Foundation, furthering the legacy of our late founder, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, into the future. Be safe. Be well, everyone. We hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.